In 1972, a, a plane carrying 45 mostly young people crashed in the Andes Mountains, and 12 died immediately, and over the next 72 days, <clears throat> more died from exposure, starvation, avalanches. In late spring, two of the men climbed a 15,000-foot mountain without any gear and then hiked 10 days to find help. Makes the chief game not sound that impressive, does it? <laughs> and, and, and I was, someone sent me a text this morning about how Patrick Mahomes was called a warrior for playing football, and I, th I was thinking about the men in the Ardans and the Battle of Bulls in 1945 and thinking, eh, you know, there's 20 below zero, living in holes, being shelled. Not that heroic. I mean, he's sleeping in a multi-million dollar house. But 16 remaining survivors were rescued. They had only been able to survive because of cannibalism. And I say that to say, just to give you a glimpse into the horrors of their ordeal. And in one scene in the movie based on the book Society of the Snow, written by a friend of many of the survivors, several of the young men were having this honest conversation about the meaning and purpose of their suffering and of their lives, and they were questioning if there's any meaning in any of it. Understandably, this was well into their ordeal. Most, if not all, of the young men were from Roman Catholic backgrounds. <clears throat> and one devout young man asked a friend about the status of his faith after all that they had endured. And he replied, my faith has never been stronger, but it is not a faith in your God anymore. That God tells us what to do at home, but he doesn't tell us what to do out here on the mountain. So my faith is now in us. And I don't judge that young man for that statement, I can't imagine enduring what he had been through, but I quote him because it's not an uncommon sentiment. It's been voiced in concentration camps, hospital rooms, the basements of homes, and in many other dark nights of the soul. I've heard it voiced to me personally in the last year. Maybe it's been in your own heart and mind. God may be there, but he doesn't have anything to say to me in this suffering. Scripture's full of human suffering from the fall of man in the garden to shortly after that a brother murdering a brother, a worldwide catastrophe, slavery, exile, war upon war, on and on it goes. So God's word to his people was written mostly during times of great difficulty and suffering because that's mostly what human history has been about. And I understand that, that times of great discovery and beauty and joy and celebration are one track, but misery runs on a parallel track. It always has. And these young men suffering in the mountains had been taught, or at least they had understood to have been taught, that faith in God was divorced from real life, or at least from real life when it became really hard. And now in the mountains, watching friends die, suffering unimaginable tragedy. For some, the faith, as they had understood it, left them when they most needed it. So what do we believe that God has promised us? What do we believe that God expects from us? So has he promised us health and prosperity and a mostly trouble-free life? Now some believe that. They're always going to be dist of that illusion. Or has he promised only things that will be experienced in the life to come, that we can't really trust him to bring any real good in this life? Or has he promised us nothing, really? God's going to do what God's going to do. I can do nothing about it. I can't expect anything from him, proven by the fact that in my darkest hour, he didn't come through for me. And if I can expect nothing from him, how can he expect anything from me, especially love or commitment? So I know he's there, but why should I pray? He's stronger than me. He isn't asking for my opinion about how to run the world. He's not even asking for my opinion about how to run my life. So I'm going to yield because he's stronger than me. I have no choice, but I will not love him or trust him. I suspect that's what that young man suffering in the mountains was saying. God hasn't answered our prayers, which he had. 
but it didn't seem like it. So we're on our own out here. And if we're on our own out here, wherever out here is, then we're on our own everywhere. He'd become a functional deist where God is powerful, he's in charge, but he's impersonal and uninvolved. He made the cosmos, he made us, and now we are of little to no interest to him. We're on our own. Today's week two of a three-week series from the book of Daniel. I'm calling Don't Try to Change the World, Just Be Faithful. Last week, be faithful in the small times. Today, be faithful in the hard time. So quick review. Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of the world's end, superpower. Babylon had conquered Judah and taken the people in exile. Babylon, of course, is modern-day Iraq. Daniel was among a select group of gifted and motivated young men who had been taken into the king's government to train for positions of leadership. He had passed the first test of navigating faithfulness to God while remaining in the good graces of a government hostile to his faith, and that's no small thing. And now a much greater test was looming. In chapter 2, in the second year of his reign, at about age 38, the king had a troubling dream. He ordered all his wise men together, tell me my dream and what it meant. And they said, well, tell us your dream, we'll give you an interpretation. Either the king didn't know the details because we can forget, the, what, we can forget about dreams as the days go on, but maybe we can remember that they're troubling but forget the details, or he just didn't want them making up a meaning for it. Making up meanings for dreams is pretty easy to do, especially if your neck is on the line. Sigmund Freud became famous. He made a living making up, making up meaning for dreams. But these guys were, were liars from the line. The king demanded they tell him both the dream and what it meant. <clears throat> the king said, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb. This is no, this is no figure of speech. This was going to happen. And your houses be made into a garbage dump, meaning I'm going to kill all your families too. And this is no idle threat. He was going to do that to some people later on. If you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts of reward and great honor from me. So they answered a second time, tell us a dream, we'll tell, it, tell you what it means. And he said, I see what you're up to, kill them all. So the decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed. They searched for Daniel and his friends to kill him. Now Stalin did the same kind of thing to his political and military leaders after World War II, but it's because he was just a totally evil creature who ruled through terror Nebuchadnezzar reasoned, what good is having a bunch of wise guys that can't even tell me the stuff I need when I really need it? So Daniel responded with tact and discretion. Remember those two words. To the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon, he asked him, why is a decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to the house, told his friends about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision, and Daniel praised the God of the heavens. So Daniel went back to the king, <clears throat> gave him interpretation, gave full glory to God, and the, and the king then fell face down, worshipped Daniel and Daniel's God, and said, Your God is indeed the God of gods. Daniel was promoted and given a lot of generous gifts. So far, so good. So next test is passed. They're all promoted. But their lines have been on the line. And they would be again. This is high-stakes stuff. This wasn't, I almost got fired. This was, I almost got killed. If Daniel had not acted with humility and tact and shown other signs of proactive wisdom, if he hadn't done the work to build a trust relationship with this supervisor slash executioner, then he would be dead. And if God had not given him wisdom beyond his ability, he would be dead. So this is grace and grit in action again. 
And Daniel's response to all of it was gratitude to God, as should be the case. He didn't share the credit with God. He didn't say, hey, God, thanks for the intel and the dream. Couldn't have done it without you. The big man upstairs really came through for me. But I'm going to take credit for my own choices because, after all, he couldn't have done it without me. No, if you look in chapter 2, verse 20, may the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He took responsibility for his actions, but he did not take credit for his for the good outcome. So keep that in mind. That's going to be key for thinking about what it means to live a faithful life. Next up, Daniel's friends are tested with a life-threatening test, the famous fiery furnace, and God rescues him. Somehow Daniel avoided this round of testing. And the next major test that we know of for Daniel was when he was in his 80s. Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, modern-day Iran. Darius, who's also known historically as Cyrus becomes ruler of the largest empire the world had ever seen at that time. And Daniel's taken out of what was probably a kind of retirement, put back to work. He was made one of three administrators over this vast nation. He did so well that he was going to be given more responsibility. So chapter 6, verse 3, Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. Now, in case you're thinking, see, Daniel's experiencing success after success. I'm pretty sure an 80-plus-year-old guy, after his second experience with a foreign nation hostile takeover, would not think being forced into this kind of work is going to be a great blessing, especially when he knew he was going to make powerful enemies in the process. Daniel was a smart guy. He knew what happens when the, when the top guy promotes you over other insiders. That's exactly what happened. The administrators kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom, but they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy. Then these men said, we'll never find any charge against Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So they formed a plan to set Daniel up for failure. They convinced the king to sign into law a ban on praying to anyone other than the king for 30 days. And when Daniel learned about the document, he went into his house the windows in his upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God as he had done before. Daniel immediately knew that he'd been framed, and he continued his lifelong habit of prayer as his accusers knew that he would. Now, he could have taken some proactive action. He could have changed his habits, but he knew they're going to find some way to frame him, and he was not going to betray God after all these years. And his faithfulness was going to prove the faithfulness of God. Now, this is not about Daniel flaunting his prayer. When you hear that, you may think, okay, Daniel went to the highest room, got in front of a picture window, and said, what? You know, look, look, I'm, I'm flaunting, I'm going to pray, the king's not going to stop me. But historically, these houses had little bitty windows that were high and small, just enough to let the breeze in, but not to let crooks in. In place of glass, they would have had a lattice. But they didn't want people looking in. Daniel wasn't flaunting his conviction. He wasn't trying to be a contrarian, and he was caught because he was being watched. He was being set up. Then these men went as a group, these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they're stationed watching him, and they approached the king after they caught him and said, hey, about that law you signed, the one that can't be revoked? Yeah, what about it? Daniel broke it. And immediately, if you read Daniel, and I hope you do this week, the king was remorseful And he had a sort of constitutional commitment to these laws of the Medes and the Persians. He couldn't go back without losing all authority. He was obligated to have Daniel executed. And so to his own great distress, he had Daniel thrown into a pit with hungry lions. 
And this is an especially cruel form of death by torture. To die this way would generally not be quick or easy. And you know the rest of the story. Daniel saved. The king gives glory to God. And his accusers and their families suffer the horrible fate they planned for Daniel. And then God's honored through the land. So it may seem by the outcome that this story contradicts my theses that the world is not changed by the extraordinary. Because Daniel's story is extraordinary. But my thesis was never that God doesn't use the extraordinary. Is that it is that we're not to seek the extraordinary. We're to seek to be found faithful. I would argue that what Austin and Jenny experienced in Central Asia was extraordinary, but I would argue that they never sought that. <clears throat> and also, people who do the ordinary for a long time without experiencing the extraordinary, that by itself is extraordinary. So we're to seek to be found faithful. I'm pretty sure young Daniel, when he first got drug off into Babylon at around age 17, didn't, he's writing down his life goals, be miraculously rescued from being eaten alive. In fact, we know from the response of his friends who shared his faith that Daniel actually would have had no expectation of being saved at all. He didn't know what God was going to do. If you go back to his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were about to be burned alive, and they were told, you've got one last chance to deny God or die. And they said, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he'll rescue us from your hand. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your idols. So the outcome was God's choice. They didn't know what it was going to be. Faithfulness was their choice. And Daniel had no way of knowing whether God would choose to save him or allow him to die in that moment. We do know this. He survived that moment, but God eventually allowed Daniel to die. He's, he's not still walking around the planet somewhere. He probably died of old age, which is very often in itself not an easy death. So what do we expect of God? Do we expect that he keeps all trouble from us? That we, get to, we know we need some trouble to grow, but we get to choose it? Can we expect rescue from fire and lion or death by fire and lion? We don't know. It really is his call. Is it okay if God gives me 60 or 90 years? That's okay. But it's not okay if I only get 30 or 10. It's not okay. Why did so many die in the mountain in 1972 and so few survive? And why did that one die and then that one survive? These guys were wrestling with, I think it's just all the cosmic roll of the dice. It's all pure chance. Death is without meaning. Life without meaning. And then what does God expect from us? Well, biblically, he doesn't expect us to try to figure him out. In fact, it's often discouraged trying to figure him out. Quit trying to figure him out. Just obey him as he's revealed himself to us. The things revealed belong to us. The secret things belong to him. What he wants is faith-fueled faithfulness. He wants us to endure in hard times. And we're told in Scripture we're going to have hard times. We've seen it all around us. We've seen it in Scripture. We see it in history. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the lives of us, of people around us. So we're supposed to endure in hard times, but we're not made of steel, are we? Paul wrote, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Hard-pressed on every side sounds hard. Perplexed means I don't understand what's going on. In fact, I'm totally confused. If you've ever been totally confused, it's very unnerving. Persecuted is just a terrible experience. It means the people around you are coming after you. Struck down means exactly what you think. You're smacked to the ground. If we were steel pots, if we were impervious to all this, God would not get glory. It's not impressive when a steel pot 
isn't hurt, isn't perplexed. The treasures in jars of clay, these very weak things, so the glory is not ours but his. We are not crushed. We don't give in to despair. We're never abandoned and we're not destroyed. But it's going to feel close at times, real close at times. So go back to Daniel, what we can learn from God's work in his life. I'm going to use, I'm using the hook of grace and grit because it's a helpful two-word summary of what I think faithfulness looks like in practice. Keeping those two things in mind. And I, and I don't go grit and grace, it's grace and grit, because God's grace is the story. It's the story of Daniel, the Bible, human history. It's the story of your life. God chose Daniel. God gave him wisdom. God gave him favor. God gave him life to start with. So when you read the Bible, Daniel is not the hero. God is always the hero of the Bible. And we need to make sure that we understand that. But Daniel's grit couldn't, shouldn't be missed in the story either. Jenny talked about the white space, and she's alluding to the fact you read Scripture and you can read the epic stuff, but often you can, like we talked about last week, there's this epic stuff and then there's nothing, and then all of a sudden a new king is there. And what happened in all that white space? Well, Daniel, just, lots of days of Daniel just showing up. So just don't miss Daniel's grit. Let me just read some, some phrases. I'm going to run through the book of Daniel. Daniel resolved. Daniel asked. Daniel urged. Daniel praised. Daniel went to the king's executioner. Daniel went to the king. These are a lot of proactive, courageous choices. Daniel requested that his friends be made key leaders. Daniel was terrified by his thoughts, but he didn't stop. Daniel said, you can keep your gifts, give your reward to someone else. Daniel distinguished himself. Daniel was uncorruptible. Three times a day, got on his knees and prayed. So you have to pay attention to Daniel's grit, the choices he made that made him faithful that revealed God to others. A couple of things I would say about Daniel. One, he lived decided, not deciding. We use that phrase a lot, but I think it's important. He was determined he was going to honor God with his life. He passed the earlier and easier tests. This helped his faith muscles grow for later tests. And I would say this is true for any of us, particularly, though, if you're middle school, high school, college age, right out of college, it's really important to pay attention to the faith test that God's putting in front of you. It's a great book called The Making of a Leader by Robert Clinton, and he talks about how God uses these early tests to prepare you for later things. Don't blow through them. He didn't decide as he went whether he would stay faithful. He had already decided he didn't live deciding. Of course, this, he sinned. He was a human. He failed. This is not about perfection. It's about a settled direction. This is a really crucial point and one we need to think deeply about in our own lives. And, and we need to look in the mirror and think deeply about it in our own lives. Am I decided or am I perpetually deciding if I'm in or out? Second, he lived a life full of trouble and he still remained faithful. And I say that, that sounds pretty obvious. Well, of course, that's kind of the whole point. But I say it because we can tend to read his story and think, yeah, he had trouble. But if I had the cool stuff happen to me that Daniel had happen to him, I could do that too. I just haven't had that cool stuff happen to me. And, it's, and it can translate to, I would do that if I had the same kind of stuff happen to me, you know, that happened to Joe or Rob or whatever. But I haven't had. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the cool stuff that happened to Daniel. Stuff like living through a siege of your town where people are dying all around you, probably fam family and friends, forced march to Babylon as a POW, living under the constant threat of death. You go, okay, well, yeah, I don't really think that's all that cool. I don't want that. But, I, but he did have some cool dreams and visions. If I could just get one of those, you know, just one of those, 
I wouldn't mind that. Well, let's talk about his cool dreams and visions. After one of them, this is in Daniel 8, 27, after one of his cool dreams, Daniel said, I was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Still want one of those. After a vision, Daniel said, I mourn for three weeks. So when Daniel had this particular vision, he said the men that were with him who didn't even see the vision were so overwhelmed with terror that they ran and hid. So the ambiance of the vision terrified them. So Daniel said, I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. And he was in shock for three weeks. So I don't know. I, if, if I got to get that with the vision, I think I'll just let someone else have the visions. You get the point. He was faithful because he chose to be faithful. And it's not if I could just have something cool happen, then I could be faithful. That's not the point of Daniel. God's a hero. He gets the glory. Daniel was faithful. His faithfulness revealed God's glory. She so said, okay, Terry, let me get this right. What I hear you saying is that if things are terrible and we're suffering, we're to trust God and give him thanks. And if things go well, after we've been faithful, we're to give him glory. That's exactly right. So when do we get to take credit? Never. When does God get blamed? Never. And some people have told me, okay, you lost me right there. So let's go to Daniel's dreams and visions and then also to the actual history they revealed and, and think about what would it mean if we had Daniel's perspective? Would it position us to live like he did? Be faithful and give glory, not give blame. So we're not going to read Daniel's dreams and visions. You can do that yourself this week, and I would encourage you to do it. But if you do that, do that. let me summarize those dreams and visions. They speak of a train of human kingdoms that will rise and fill God's world with violence. And then they'll be brought down by God. And then this train of kingdoms will continue until God's kingdom brings a final judgment and God rules the world with justice. So Daniel has visions where in symbolic fashion Persia becomes a superpower and then Greece takes over and destroys Persia, which happened. And then a power greater than Greece rises up and there is endless debate about this this power, this final power. It, was it the murder, murderous Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes? Was this the Roman Empire? Is this some future king at the end of the age? And the final kingdom is left indistinct, probably because it would apply to all future kingdoms that will rise up and set themselves against God because Daniel was written not just for them, but for us and for everyone until the Lord returns. The final kingdom is, is going to destroy all the kingdoms of men that rise up, and many will rise up. Hitler's 1,000-year Nazi reign lasted 12 years. He died a drug-addled madman in his own hand. But if you were living in that 1,000-year reign during those 12 years, it would have seemed, seemed like the end of all things. Daniel's given to all of God's people at all times to offer hope and inspire faithfulness. So if you're living under a tyrant, it doesn't matter if it's Stalin and the Soviet Union or some local village despot. Hope can flee. Darkness seems to be winning. And this is also true if you're living under the tyranny of personal struggles and darkness now. Take it all the way down to micro level. You know, sometimes we can hear of people living in, you know, in Palestine right now or Ukraine or Armenia, any number of, of terrible places in the world. But if you're living at the existential edge of your life, in Wichita, Kansas, it doesn't get any darker than that. It just doesn't. So in all cases, no matter where you are, Stalin, 
Nazi Germany or in your own personal darkness here. Hope is found in the fact that God controls the, f- the flow of human history. We are perplexed but not undone. Daniel was faithful, so can I be. God was faithful, he always will be. God's in tro- controlling the entire sweep of human history. He knows the beginning from the end. His kingdom will reign forever and ever. I meanwhile have to live day by day, and then sometimes it gets down to minute by minute or prayer by prayer. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Some of you have been there. I have. Some of you will be there. So you can't lose sight of God's lordship over all of human history. So what we do is we gather here in, on a bitter cold morning, and we turn to the word of God to gain perspective because we all leak. Humans leak. We leak perspective. We leak hope. We leak faith. And God didn't expect us. We are, we're clay pots, clay pots, and we have cracks, and so we leak. So we have to continually have an infusion of hope and peace and perspective. The Holy Spirit is not fill you up, cap the lid, you're good to go. It's rivers of living water flowing in, flowing out. So Jesus is God's kingdom come. We live in the middle of the last days. Christ has come. Christ will return. In the meanwhile, human beasts will rise and fall, but they will fall. And followers of Christ in these last days have one calling, be faithful. Look at Matthew 26. Jesus has been betrayed. He's soon to give his life for the sins of the world. The high priest said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say. But I say to you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man. This is the Lord's favorite designation for himself. And it comes straight from the book of Daniel. You'll see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. This is blasphemy. He's worthy of death. Why did he say it's blasphemy? Go to Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, these visions that made him sick for weeks. Behold the clouds. And they made him sick because they were just overwhelmed his, his, his human capacity. I saw the clouds of heaven. There came the one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom that shall not be destroyed. This priest knew the ancient prophecies. He knew the Lord was saying, I'm the son of man, I'm the true king, my kingdom is this lasting kingdom. So how does having Daniel's perspective help us be faithful? How does it empower us to take responsibility and give glory? To take responsibility and give thanks? He had trained himself to see God, not just the human king standing in front of him. So when Belshazzar says, I'm going to give you all the goodies of the kingdom, he said, give them to somebody else. He saw God not just a scheming liars plotting against him. And so in your workplace or your classroom, when people are plotting against you in their own sort of way, you can train yourself to see God, not just them. He saw God not just the death by a wild animal. So we take up a very small amount of space. I mean, you, I can put you in one chair. <laughs> we take up a very small amount of time. You're not going to live very long. We're very easy to hurt and kill. We are dust. He is the ancient of days. He answers to no one. He needs no one and nothing. So, of course, we're responsible to be faithful, and of course, he deserves the glory. We're going to yield to him in the end. We, we, we have no choice. But will we love him? Will we trust him? Will we be faithful to him? We do have a choice there. 
Now, how did Daniel get to this place of seeing God in the midst of his manifold troubles? Again, we have a few clues. Remember, his faithfulness was with food on that small day, a small choice on a small day, led to bigger choices on bigger days. Luke 16.10, faithful in little, faithful in a lot. What if Daniel had not trusted God and had not been faithful? What would he have missed? Well, he would have missed the chance to seeing God be faithful. He would have missed the chance to grow his own faith. Pay attention to the little tests. They really do matter. And let's go to the place where old Daniel showed us how life habits shape us and prepare us. And we can't underestimate the power of small, small choices. Now, I'll read this passage again. Now, when Daniel learned the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem three times a day. He got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he'd done before. So three times a day for so many days, this now 80-year-old man had gotten on his knees and prayed. It's impressive to me. I'm 65 that he could get up after getting on his knees at 80-something. But he pulled himself up three times a day after giving thanks to God. God's grace, Daniel's grit, a faithful life. So will you train your heart to trust God or will you train your heart to trust you? Because your heart is being trained. Your heart is being trained to trust something or someone. Make sure that you're training your heart to trust the one who's ultimately trustworthy. And don't miss the movement in these small moments. God's at work now, today. Get on your knees and give thanks. You say, oh, I will as soon as it's April and it's not so cold and dark. No, right now, on this cold, dark January day, train your heart to trust. That simple choice, all these simple choices, the white space in Daniel's story, that's what faithfulness looks like, and that's how you train to see the eternal in the temporal. Let's pray together. Give thanks to God. While the the worship team comes, Are you perplexed? Are you confused? That's okay. Give thanks to God.